Hi, everybody, and welcome to the bonus No Country episode. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknism. Chris, how are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. Good. Excellent. We are recording this the next day after our first part, which is a first for us. Usually we, we record those back to back. But uh, I had to go to bed. I had, <laughs> I had to wake up early in the morning with a, with a baby. And uh, Chris very graciously said, hey, man, it's cool. So we are back. And I kind of like this, Chris. I kind of like the, the day to think about stuff in between the two episodes. What do you what do you think? Me too. Me too. I, I, I think that's really maybe, you know, I don't know if we want to uh, lock in uh, having been locked down. I, I don't know if we want to lock into any set plan exactly, but I, I do think it works. And I think it suits uh, the different mood and tone. Uh, so, yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm very happy with that. Excellent. Cool. So you may notice our dear listeners, you might notice that for this particular episode, Chris and I have tried a slightly different format. I've been posting these on Patreon as um, solid episodes with the first part and the second part kind of jammed together into a two and a half hour beast. And we've decided to actually split them up. So the first part has its own title. Uh, The second part now is coded differently and has its own title. Please let us know what you think about that we can be emailed at the butterfly in your mouth at gmail.com. We are, um, you know, constantly in flux and trying to figure out, uh, what works and what doesn't and what you like and what you don't like. You know, we're, we're getting to know each other, me and Chris and you guys. So just let us know, you know, do you prefer the, the big old episodes or do you like it this way? Um, and we will take all of that into consideration. Chris, do we have any other housekeeping before we get a roll on? No, I think that's uh, that's the important issue. I mean, in terms of, of some, uh, well, some fun stuff, uh, we do want to remind subscribers that uh, the first of the professional bibliographies that we hope to provide, because although we're all about sort of uh, having fun, we're, we're about education too. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, been a long time teaching type of figure and we've got some great uh, life resources in terms of reading and also multimedia uh, resources that that are really I think something cool and and worth something we're, we're still de- deciding on a price point and we'll certainly give special uh, treatment to our subscribers but the first bibliography that I'm preparing is my Native American studies one which, is really cool. It's a lot deeper and richer than, you know, just Googling on who the, you know, great Native American writers are. Or it, it includes a whole range of things from anthropology to literature to folklore to contemporary culture. There's, there's quite a bit in it. So we'll keep you posted as these uh, roll out. I'm, I'm going to be doing some fine tuning of that. A reminder about our tarot character contest. Some new addition to the major arcana. It can just be conceptual. If you've got design skills, we'd love to see that. But some new figure, some new archetypal type of magical technology card to add to the tarot deck in a figurative sense, but one that suits and kind of speaks to our time. I think there are many, many interesting possibilities. We'd like to uh, 
you know, really uh, dredge into your imaginations and, and see what, what you come up with. Uh, then we also want to make a, a few more announcements about our upcoming book club, which we will start in September. The first book up is uh, my choice, and I will be leading uh, the discussions for that month. Uh, it's a fantastic book, which you may have heard of and you may have read, uh, but there's more to discover. It's called Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees, which is a quote from the poet uh, Valerie, Paul Valerie. Uh, it's written by Lawrence Weschler, who I think is one of the single finest uh, creative nonfiction journalistic writers we have. Uh, uh, I, he really transcends that level. He's just got a beautiful prose style. He never gets in the way of his subject. Uh, just a phenomenally interesting writer. He teaches in New York. Uh, his subject here is the California installation artist Robert Irwin, who has had a very, very interesting artistic life journey. Um, but you don't really have to know or even really have much appreciation for Irwin's work to just enjoy the hell out of this amazing uh, biographical work. And I think that is an enormous tribute to Weschler's writing style. But it, it takes us into the world of the Los Angeles art scene in the 60s, uh, the cool jazz scene of that time, the evolution of the art scene in between now and today, some really interesting philosophical questions about perception. Uh, but Irwin's character is just a wonderful example of someone who just never lost his curiosity, never lost his sense of wonder and possibility in life. And I think you'll find it really inspiring and a great way to kick off the fall for uh, people in the Northern Hemisphere. So those are uh, my little uh, tidbits. And I think we're, we're ready to rock and roll. Excellent. Do you have some more words for me? Can we play the word game again? Oh, yes. Okay. Just as a, as a, we're, we're starting this new tradition, which I think is, we're going to, it's a psychological experiment, which we're imposing on David, because we're <laughs> going to see over time how his lucidity and cognitive function becomes even sharper than it is. I mean, he's one of the sharpest people I know, but this is an exercise that is, uh, I recommend to everyone. He has been assigned another five words to choose two for this segment. We're doing this in, in our uh, free-to-air segments, but we're doing it behind the paywall as well, and we're upping the ante each time. So this is an ongoing uh, segment of the show. The idea is for David to work in his choice of two words. He hasn't told me which two words he's chose chosen. Uh, he has to work those in as seamlessly as possible. Your job as listeners is to try to pick out what the two words were. And over time, I guarantee this is, this is an interesting exercise. I've been doing this for a few years, and I, I found some very, very interesting uh, results come out of it. And like a lot of you know, good ideas, it, it's, the, the results are oblique. They're indirect. But we'll have some fun. So listen carefully to what David is saying. And there's always good reason to do that. And I find I always hear something more when I listen, you know, a little bit more deeply. But this gives that extra incentive of a game. And a game is very, very powerful 
as a teaching and inspiration tool. We love games, really. And if we can turn them to an educational advantage, I, I find that uh, very satisfying and very effective. So, yes, David has two words that he's going to try to, to work into the mix with as much finesse and stealth as mm-hmm. possible. Yes, yes. One of them may or may not be schadenfreude. No, I'm just kidding. That's not one of them. Just joking around. <laughs> See, you got to keep your eyes on him. He's going to get tricky. He's going to he will have to get sneakier over time. So this is another thing that's that's happening. The the psychology of this will become stealthier and sneakier. I know. I feel like I'm trying to get one over on everybody. It makes it adds an extra layer of fun for me. Because, um, yeah, going into it, I'm already thinking about where our conversation might go and where I might be able to slip these words in, which is so distant from how I typically think of things. I don't know if this is true of you, Chris, but when I'm speaking like this, um, I feel almost like I'm in a trance. When I get done speaking, I kind of, you know, I joke on the show, I've joked before about, you know, I blacked out you know, when I just kind of ramble for a while, but that's very close to how it feels. I do sort of feel like I'm, you know, channeling something, you know, some kind of thought or, or whatever. Um, and this is a very different feeling because I feel like I have to actually, uh, I guess maybe focus a little bit more, be a bit more intentional. I have to look for my openings. It's like a chess game. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is the the real challenge for us all, Uh, you know, when it comes to what we call psychic defense and and becoming, if not more enlightened, if that term puts people off in in terms of of too grand and and serious, certainly more alert. I think alert is just a beautifully, you know, down-to-earth idea. One of the tricks is to really get focused and to be more intentional, but to also be more relaxed and loose and and striking that oscillating balance between those. And so that we can look at things, you know, in real time. I mean, for you know, take the word entrance, you know, I'm going in the entrance of the building. Well, break that down, entrance. I mean, that's a very strange idea. Are you really? You want to be entranced? That's a that's a big expectation, and that's also a big submission. It seems to me. But what you're really saying is going in the front door. But think about how all of these, you know, the depth of of dimensional worlds that exists within simple phrases, and it's just once you get into that and really start peeling that apart, uh, things get enormously entertaining. Uh, what an odd idea that is, but also you have a sense of like, oh my, I gotta stay alert. Things are moving on me. You yeah, know? I was I yeah. was thinking about this uh, the other day because I was um, trying to. I was telling um, a friend of mine to do something again, but I, you know, I said it in Spanish, which is otra vez, and the literal translation of again in Spanish is other time. Makes you think other yes. time. So I was, yeah. I was just meditating on that for a while. It's like, huh, other time. Okay. Well, yeah, it's fun, man. I mean, language is a lot of fun. And I think that we have a lot of writers who listen to this show. So I feel like you, you kind of maybe should be interested in language if you're a writer. That's just me, you know? 
But uh, you know, but I think it needs to be said because uh, it's often not true, and not true as as it you know as it should be. And there are so many ways to be interested in life. I mean, you can be a Scrabble player or word game, you know, anagrams. There are all sorts of, of, of things that people can do to entertain themselves. But to be really listening and processing the world as it comes to you in real time and, and dealing with language at that level, that oftentimes get, you know, gets past us all. It really does. It's, uh, you, you, you've got to have not only alertness, but stamina. Absolutely. So today, should we start with a talk about archetypes? Where would you like to, to start with this particular conversation? Well, I, I just wanted to finish off for the moment our discussions about Bergson and uh, the, right. the problems yes. with negation, which is also kind of, it, it's connected to language. But he, he gives a very simple example, and, and this is, happens so often, and it happens a great deal in English. The, the, the capacity for this is in all of the 10 major world languages and, and you know, uh, many, many others, as far as I know. But English has a particular vulnerability to it. Supposing that you ask someone, are you happy? Were you happy mm -hmm. with that experience? And their mm -hmm. answer is, well, I'm not unhappy. Mm. Well, ask yourself really what they've said. I mean, you've really, you asked a simple question and now you've been given an answer that doesn't really say anything. You've effectively wasted someone's time and mental energy. And I think this happens an enormous amount of the time where we, we accept these kind of limp and flaccid responses but in fact there's a there's a kind of weird crafted element to them and they here are some three things to be aware of in terms of language because every word is automatically an abbreviation you know a synonym is not mm -hmm. a definition mm -hmm. so if yeah. you're going to define a word you're going to use more words so therefore it's an abbreviation we don't need more abbreviations on top of abbreviations. So have a listen and be on the lookout for the abbreviations that come your way. You know, you can't mm. completely get rid of them and you can't stop using them yourself, but you can be more aware of them. The two other things to think about in this context are equivocation. Mm. Equivocation, you know, it can often seem issue. like you know, qualifying something. Well, qualifying is, is something can be good. It can be, defer, you know, adding definition and, and making a frame situation or context more precise. Equivocation is not that. It's not that, and it's to be avoided. And the third is euphemism. Euphemism mm. is one of the nightmares, the psychological nightmares that, that permeate language and permeate culture as a consequence. So mm. those three things to think about, abbreviation, equivocation, euphemism, all within the rubric of uh, a neg negative negation strategy of, of kind of not saying anything. How, not, how yes. to use words and not say anything. And not say know? anything. I have a, a quick thing about equivocation because that is a major problem that I've had in my speech. And I think that it comes from being online too much. And 
having the experience of going on to Facebook or Twitter and putting your thoughts out into the world, saying something to the effect of, you know, um, well, I won't give an exact example because I think people are going to know exactly what I mean when I say this, but you say something on one of these social media sites and somebody comes back and says, well, that's not the case all the time. And it starts to get into your head when, I mean, you just want to tell these people, well, of course it's not that way all the time. You know, I thought that the negation or, or, you know, the exception to what I'm talking about is, is part of what I'm talking about. I get a little offended when people say stuff like this because it makes me think that they think that I'm stupid, that I don't, that I, that I actually think in absolutes rather than simply being constrained by uh, a language, you know, made up of, as you said, you know, abbreviations. I have to say what I say and and assume that other smart thinking people are going to understand that I understand that there are exceptions to what I'm saying, but it gets in your head. And so you start equivocating all the time. And if you right. go, if you go back, and I, I swear I know I've done this on these episodes, and I've been making a real effort to not do it anymore. I just want to say what I have to say, and so be it. And then you know, and then I'll say something, and and you'll say, well, hold on, this, 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 and you're not you're not doing what I what I was just you know describing. You know, we're having a discussion, right? So so we're actually picking apart something and trying to get deeper into it. But the. Um, I noticed in my speech that I equivocate way too much where I'll say something like, you know, time is like an egg, except, you know, I mean, sometimes it's not like an egg. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's more like a river that you step into, but never, never the same river twice. And then before you know it, I've spoken for three and a half minutes and I could have just said, you know, time is like an egg and some idiot can say, well, it's not like an egg all the time. Yeah. Okay, fine. I Sure whatever, <laughs> you know, I'm just, no more equivocation. That's, that's my big rule. Big bombastic, bold statements that I stand by. And I might, I might even get a little uh, snarky about it. If, if anybody calls me on it, I'm, I might say something to the effect of, well, no, no, there's no exceptions to what I'm saying. This is the way it is all the time. <laughs> So there. Well, this is the this is such a this covers some really interesting ground because the equivocation uh, habit is very very common in in speech, and you can get to a point where your own heard speech rhythms don't sound right to you uh-huh. if you yeah. don't have qualifiers and equivocations and wishy-washy and it gets worse you know you start off qualifying in a really sort of reasonable way then pretty soon you've completely undermined anything that you were saying no one knows what in fact you did say Mm -hmm. but when you have that in writing i did this with with the textbooks i had you know so i had so many uh not well they were just concerns about being too assertive you know, and I and I thought, yeah. well, I don't want to sound bombastic. And then I read through it and I thought, well, wait a minute here. Are you yeah. going to say something or not? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, 
forget this stuff. So I cut out all of that equivocation and it just read so much more clearly and vigorously. And I just thought, oh my God, you know? So you do this need to problem. have a, a come to God moment with equivocation and just totally. start hearing it and, and really ask yourself, why am I, because it, it, it's a weird self-editing, uh, you know, anxious like, I hope someone doesn't say, well, time isn't like an egg all the time. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, wait a minute. And so you're predetermining what people are going to say. You're prejudging, you know. And, and Yeah, people- and you'd never want to think about that. You never want to think when you're telling a story, you, you know. So I was at a party and, you know, it was all white people. So, you know, none of them could dance. And then somebody's like, well, my Uncle Harry was a tango champion three years. Re-. And it, okay, shut up. I don't care. Yeah, for, yeah, for the purposes exactly. of the story, white people can't dance. Just, you know what I'm trying to say for the most part. But I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say for the most part. I'm going to, I'm just, I'm going to eradicate equivocation from my speech patterns entirely. Good. Good. That is a positive move. See, it's little things that change the frame, that change perspective, that change really the communication channels that change the strength of the vine to use a metaphor that, that we've been talking about or, or in terms of relationships and connections with people. You know, we've all got to do more to strengthen our end of these communications and to be clearer, you know, I mean, we don't yeah. want all this mushiness. Yeah, and, that's and what worry. philosophy is to me. You know, when I, when I read a lot of philosophy books, that's why I put them down because I think to myself, you could have just said this in a chapter, but a lot of philosophy is chapters and chapters of equivocations and making sure that no stone is left unturned. There's a a great meme that I shared on Twitter the other day, and it's a picture of a man holding a sword, and the sword has the word source on it, source with a question mark, like what's your source, right? (laughs) And then there is a there's a ninja who's swinging like a flaming uh, uh, sort of um, catapult over his head. And he's about to just launch this at the sword holder's face. Right. And the the flaming trebuchet type thing simply says it came to me in a dream. <laughs> and I, th- oh, I thought that was that's fantastic. Perfect. Yeah. That's yeah. perfect. How do you well, know this just, is true? Because it was it was God told me. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, we're, we're uh, discourse, as uh, the uh, academics say, is is paralyzed now because of anxiety. You know, everyone is just so afraid of of so many different things, and fortunately, uh, they're you know we just laugh <laughs> and yeah. move on. Um, but yeah, that's, that's something to, uh, so those three equivocation and euphemism, I think we will have to keep attacking that because that's just such a pain in the ass. It's ridiculous. But, um, we have been talking about archetypes and characters, the relationship between those two really interesting concepts and how they relate to, well, there, there are connection points, uh, oscillation points between psychology, language, and culture with a capital C, which we've been talking of in terms of the ghost radio signal. I've been thinking a lot about archetypes uh, since we rolled that out because I, I, I felt like we, we could offer some more precision 
Mm. And here's what I've come up with. And I could be wrong. Maybe time isn't like an egg and archetypes uh, aren't at all like what I'm going to say. Chris, well, Chris, I'm going to stop you right here because archetypes aren't always blah, 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 blah. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Please continue. So I, I'm going to, uh, to make the radical assertion that archetypes have a genuine superpower. You know, we often think of superheroes as a species or uh-huh. kind of archetype. So I wanted to turn that around a little bit. Well, what is that superpower? Okay. They are simultaneously familiar, instantly recognizable, instant, you know, even. But they are also fundamentally exotic by definition. Mm. That's a really cool oscillation, it seems to me. How do you be intensely familiar, intensely familiar to the point where you can help people orient themselves around you and yet mm-hmm. be exotic, be larger than life, be other? That's a real, real achievement. And I can't think of anything uh, that in human culture that is is quite in that category. I think archetypes are distinct that way. Mm-hmm. But that's an enormous ask. And, and that's a very serious level of engagement. Hence, a softer, milder, more equivocal, equivocal uh, character. And I think that's where characters come from. I think they are equivocations against mm. archetypes. They're, they're homier, they're friendlier, they're easier to deal with. And I closed my eyes and I thought, well, let me think of a character example. And I thought, well, we've talked about Winnie the Pooh and Winnie and uh, Piglet, you know, hunting the woozle. And that made me think of my favorite character from those stories, Eeyore. And <laughs> as, as people will know, Eeyore the mopey donkey is, is widely considered to be uh, a kind of personification, an animalized personification of, of manic depression or certainly depression. Everything is always wrong. Eeyore is always gloomy, always negative, always using negation strategies, just a downer, a buzzkill, you know? Everyone knows an Eeyore. I have a perfect person in mind in my life. And I know exactly what every single response to anything I ever will say, because I've got the Eeyore code there. The more dimensional a character, the more complex and subtle the level of engagement. And then I started thinking, okay, so what I'm really thinking of here is symbolic representations. And I thought, wow, that makes me think of algebra. And I thought, what if characters and, at a higher level, archetypes create an algebra of consciousness? Hmm. And I think that's a really interesting idea, Uh, and I'm not going to equivocate on that. I think an algebra of consciousness is an interesting way to think of what's going on with this. And at that point, uh, David, I'm going to just fling it back to you. An algebra of consciousness is compelling and mysterious to me because I'm very much so not great at math. Um, But 
it does seem to me that when I'm thinking in my capacity about math, there is sort of, there's basic algebra that you can learn in the seventh grade, and then that algebra can go all the way up to extremely complex theorems that further get symbolized. And and so I do like the idea of the additions and the equations. Um, I'm thinking of the equals sign. So mm-hmm. when, when we're thinking about the algebra of, uh, you know, characters being the algebra of, of consciousness, are we talking about adding them together to equal something? How, how would that play out in your estimation? Okay, very good question. And I think I have the beginning of an answer. Uh, if we look at our individual psyches, our consciousness that we have access to in any way that we feel we can engage with and really are aware of, and, and in a sense, what we take responsibility for in social terms. If we look at that as a large chalkboard filled with algebraic equations, those equations, those manipulation of symbols, those relationships, they're all dynamic. They're they're no longer just static symbols. Mm -hmm. There's a whole living relationship system going on. That's what really algebra means in that sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The interrelationship of symbols and a kind of mosaic that makes sense of them. I think we're, we're looking, if we look at the characters and archetypes that we respond to in the world, and sometimes we, we're not aware of that until we really have a, a confrontation. I think that's when we discover some great books, those of us who are readers, that's what we dig into. We, we suddenly realize, wow, I, I really identify with what's going on there. And I find that experience quite remarkable when it's a very minor character that suddenly mm-hmm. really just gets my attention. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think of, I don't know if people have seen Cirque du Soleil shows, but they have such a beautiful discipline of, you know, you have all of this amazing, spectacular circus theater going on. But if you do for a moment glance off to a minor character just on the edge of the stage, you will see a performer giving that role all they've got as if that's the most important person. And they, of course, could be a star in another uh, number, another performance. But it's that depth and, you know, texture of detail across, you know, the whole spectrum of importance, so to speak, importance of the characters. Everybody's important, you know, when we're all (laughs) minor characters in each other's lives. So I think that we could look at the the pantheon of, of archetypes, characters, and to some extent concepts that we connect with as being part of an algebra of consciousness. And that if we did just begin to entertain that metaphor, we might feel slightly more empowered, even and maybe especially those of us who don't feel like we come by uh, math skills generally or algebra particularly. I mean, some people do feel you know very strong in geometry, for instance, and don't with algebra. And on and on and on. But if we just thought of it in those terms, that there is a kind of of a relationship mosaic of symbolic connections 
and that there's also the possibility of uh, engaging with that and manipulating them. I think that mm-hmm. gives us a kind of insight into what turns us on in terms of, of characters, archetypes, symbols, what moves us, what gets us. Because some things I think that we're, we're aware of is they're important. We just go, eh, it's not really, it doesn't, it doesn't speak to us. Mm-hmm. Well, why do things speak to us? Because they connect with our algebra of consciousness. I like it. And the first thing that comes to mind is somebody who is uh, sort of tinkering on an engine, maybe a transmission in their garage. And then eventually, after a certain amount of time of tinkering, they put that transmission or engine into a car and they turn the car on. And now the car is running. And I feel like um, there's some some math work going on, even if it's not pen and paper, there's some math work going on with that in terms of fitting pieces together, addition, subtraction, uh, symbolic representation, understanding where certain things go, and then eventually you kind of turn, turn that, that thing on. And so if we're thinking about an algebra of consciousness, it makes me think of the fact that there are uh, people who leave that engine or transmission in a junk heap in a junkyard somewhere and never really do anything with it. And I'm relating this specifically to the idea of uh, story as the vehicle for this uh, for this engine, right? Uh, or maybe it's the other way around, right? Maybe story is the engine and then the, the vehicle is what it inhabits. Um, because, you know, I'm just thinking of um, that those figures and equations as a sidebar by the way i feel like uh i've been ruined by the film a beautiful mind i think that was the <laughs> film where all the equations are popping up in front of his head so yeah. now when people mention algebra or equations i imagine these little spiders of equations you know sort of <laughs> crawling up webs around my around my skull as though it were real um so it makes me think of um you know of being able to uh, kind of use this this kind of algebra to unlock and power uh, sort of different forces within a person, especially within relationship, relation rather, to their world. And um, I don't know if any of that really made a ton of, it made sense to me. <laughs> I'm not equivocating. I said what I said. <laughs> Look, you, you, you advanced the whole discussion there and that's all that anyone can because this is complicated stuff but no i i think that was really well said and there are a couple of interesting things i i felt exactly the same way with a beautiful one i think russell crowe was did a great job in that and it reminded me though of of, of i don't know it, it's a it's one of the few hitchcock movies that i really really think is silly i think it's called torn curtain and it features Paul Newman as a physicist, and uh, but it's a Cold War story. And Newman is just not believable with equations on a chalkboard at all. And he's just, the whole thing is just painful to watch. But, and I, I remember thinking that. And years later, I came upon some trivia that there, there are several segments of the film where Newman is in front of this chalkboard. It's, it's a black and white film. And the, the whole 
board is covered with these arcane, you know, hieroglyphs of, of math and science, you know, and most of them are in fact <laughs> not anything to do with real math or theoretical physics at all. And they should have gotten some experts in there, but snuck into one of the little segments because Newman was a real practical joker and uh, was always playing pranks on people apparently but someone had written Newman sucks, you know, and it's just in, it's, it's very difficult to find, but, and he's so off kilter in the whole thing. I, I don't even know if he noticed it in the moment, but I just, it make, it just makes me laugh. So there is a thing about, you know, the equations coming to life in, in a good way right. and also coming to life, maybe in a kind of, uh, you know, difficult way. There's no question. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think the, the idea of thinking of that level of engagement as some sort of system like algebra or a hieroglyph system that we can have more of a participatory engagement mm-hmm. with. We're not just being uh, overwhelmed and imprinted and therefore having to ignore and equivocate. We can actually maybe solve some equations you know that's what yeah. algebra is about it's about solving for things you know right right and that uh, something that had slipped out of my mind and came back as you were talking was the idea that we meet a lot of people in our lives and have a lot of experiences and sometimes we turn those people and experiences into stories where they become archetypes or characters but in life they don't really do that and I think what engaging with characters and archetypes outside of our lived experience does is it it begins to run those programs in our minds um, in ways that we wouldn't get from our day-to-day lives. Especially, you know, if you have a life that's pretty set in stone like I do right now, where I'm at home with a baby all day and I check the internet every once in a while and I go back and forth to the same two or three stores or restaurants to pick up food and and that's it. You know, I think that engaging with characters and archetypes, whether they're in entertainment like books or movies or, you know, uh, things that I see along the internet, it, it keeps the, um, it keeps those relational equations interacting and combusting with each other. You know what I mean? So I can kind of like, I don't know, I can, I can take sort of different realities and kind of suture them onto my own. Right. And, and really have my, allow myself to grow in a way that isn't otherwise uh, humanly impossible. It's sort of the original dream of what the internet was intended to do. The internet uh, wasn't just a machine for running a bunch of programs. It was a machine that was supposed to run more and more varied programs in your own mind. Well said, you know, and I think to, to tie back to uh, another metaphor uh, that we've talked about at various points in this series, uh, the, the notion of, of Solomon Islanders say getting a new earth moving machine as some sort of glorious gift from the Mm -hmm. post-colonial forces. And the first thing they do is take it apart you know, because they want to build themselves into it. I think that idea of, of what we need to build ourselves into our reality. I mean, this is Jung's sort of key point. And I think we do it with people in terms of, of, of projecting a sense of character and archetype because we want things interesting. We want also to see some reflection of the algebra of our consciousness, 
you know, mm-hmm. and and we mm-hmm. we do make we we create heroes and villains, you know. Uh, we we mm-hmm. we tend to to want to see, and we notice that shadows can often be bigger than the things you know that they supposedly represent, and and we kind of like that, you know. Yeah, it, it's yeah. more interesting. Uh, late afternoon is more interesting than than straight up noon, you know, because of the right. shadows. You know. Oh, I saw something online the other day. Speaking of shadows being more interesting. Uh, I saw something in which a person was attempting to debunk Stonehenge and they provided photos of people installing the the stones in the in the early uh, 40s or something like that. And I thought to myself, that's completely ridiculous. Stonehenge is real. Now, here's the thing. There are some conspiracy theories that I do enjoy that I'm sure some people would look at and have that exact same reaction to. And I will fully admit that I am not going to investigate whether or not that's true. I'm going to look no further because Stonehenge is real and that's all there is to it. (laughs) Even if it's not real, it's real. And I, I just, let's say hypothetically, this person is correct. Uh, I don't, I don't want that to be reality. So I'm going to ignore it. You have to wonder about the the mentality behind the debunkers. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've joked that you know we want to be rebunkers. I mean, debunking yeah. is a very it's worth checking that word out. I mean, what what is bunking actually doing there? Uh, right. it, it's a very very. Uh, well, it's an Eeyore type of, of attitude, isn't it? I mean, really, it's just yeah. like, oh, well, you know. <clears throat> I mean, it's sort of funny when a cartoonist like Gary Larson, who did The Far Side, he did some interesting things with Stonehenge. But, I mean, there the the uh, the goal is explicit, you know, comedy. Uh, it's, a, it's a meme. It's a one image, maybe a little bit of text. And he really... He's actually uh, taking it very seriously because he's doing it the honor of, of serving as a, mm-hmm. a cultural hinge point for a joke that makes mm-hmm. us rethink, you know, our, our sense of history and time. But, I, yeah, look, I'm, a, I'm with you. I, I absolutely know that Stonehenge is real. And I just can't really understand why... Well, first of all, that word "real" is is one of our three. Uh, I the thought three that most as I was saying it. Works. I thought that you as know? I was saying it. Yeah. The three most dangerous words, and I won't equivocate. I'll just assert them in English: natural, real, and equal. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost invariably, there is a kind of psychic earthquake happening whenever those words are around, and it's only because they're so common that we we get a nerd to them and that's really really a problem because there's always something deeply rhetorical whenever they appear and there's something that's being we're being coerced in some direction and oftentimes we end up using it because we're so uh habitually you know addicted to them really uh they're very difficult to avoid those three words but uh worth thinking about and trying to do you think that your head would explode if I said, well, Chris, uh, you know, naturally, um, equality is real? <laughs> well, you know, I, what I would say is that that slips by mm-hmm. and through defenses purely for audio rhythmic reasons. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the, the ways that 
that these phrases and and category smushing ideas get through is that they we hear them so often we read them so often they 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 sound uh you know it's it's like burnham would come to dunsinane we don't notice it's their camouflage sneaking you know mm. around us all the time but uh we've got to you know stay on the lookout uh i had a sudden <laughs> flash to um during the covid crisis you know there was people in you know lockdown situations but the one mm. i saw was this uh really really tragic regional uh, very, very uh, middle-class British street of essentially uh, public housing uh, dwellings. And so if there is any landscaping, it's, it's, it's overly done and it's overly neat and it doesn't look real. It looks like it's part of a railroad, miniature railroad village. But the guy in the house wanted to get out for, you know, for obvious reasons. And he disguised himself as a hedge and i just it was so funny to watch him this this hedge moving in such a barren uh completely unnatural environment and he thought he was getting away with it but mm-hmm. yeah those those three words if we could only come to terms with them i think we'd have the beginning of uh some some mental liberation, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of words. I think those three are a good start. Um, and I think that it would be best if everybody uh, agreed with my definitions of those words too. And, and yes. has, yeah, maybe I'm getting well. too assertive. Oh shit, man. Yeah, I gotta, well, I gotta pull know, it back a little bit. I gotta pull it back here. I'm getting a little too assertive. Well, uh, but I think that given the inflection and the tone, I think it's kind of charming. It's sort of reassuring. I, you know, it, it's so surprising. Uh, what it is is refreshing because everyone is so uh, they're they're equivocating to the max all the time. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. really like you know, it's it's like a breath of fresh air when someone just says, "No, this is what it is." <laughs> I know, I know, and it was a breath of fresh air to say that this is where I get off the train on conspiracy theories. You know, yeah. goes goes against everything that I believe in terms of keeping an open mind and, you know, inhabiting different reality tunnels, as Robert Anton Wilson would put it. But I said, that is one reality tunnel I refuse to enter. It is boarded up in my mind. It is condemned. It will collapse on me if I try to go through it. I'm not, I'm just not going there. I went to Stonehenge a few years ago and it was one of the best and most profound moments of my entire life. You can feel the, the magic and the reality of, of those, uh, stones, particularly the blue stones. So anyway, sorry for going off on a Stonehenge tangent. No, no, just, no. That place I, I, means a lot to me, you know? I, 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 you have spoken about it before, and I knew the moment you mentioned it that that you were going to be all over anyone who wasn't into the yeah. deep reality and significance of Stonehenge. And I like yeah. that. You know, I think that's right. important. Uh, yeah. you, you, you've circled your wagons around those stones, and God damn it, you're gonna, you know, they're important. <laughs> and I support that totally. I mean, who, who doesn't? I mean, of course they're real. Yeah. Of course, what do we mean by that anyway? Um, but here's well, another thought. Go, go to, for uh, it. Go, yep. Well, I, I just because we we you'd raised some interesting points about memory, and that's so fundamental to what we're 
talking about it. It's, it's one of the key things that Rupert Sheldrake has talked about, and it's one of the, the important elements that he drew from Bergson and Jung. And so we we're involved in memory at every turn in this discussion. And of course, we're involved in some idea of, of what memory might be in any, you know, waking second of our lives. It's, it's such a mysterious and fundamental capacity or, or is it a human capacity? Is that the right way to think of it? And um, so I've, I've been giving that a bit more thought about trying to, uh, you know, come to terms with, with defining memory, because as we did say last time, my assertion is that, uh, our notion of memory science in cognitive studies term is really, it's no more advanced than it was 2000 years ago. It really isn't. Uh, we, we may have learned certain things, but we certainly have not pulled, you know, put the pieces of the puzzle together at all. And in many ways, I, I do believe things are more confusing. Um, the mm. insistent that, that memory traces somehow exist within our brains, within our skulls, that just, it doesn't hold up at all. Um, so I was thinking about this and uh, I was playing my uh, hand pan drum, which I really like to use mm -hmm. as a kind of meditation tool. Uh, and I recommend that to people. It, you don't have to be consciously practicing or making music in that sense. I, I recommend that too. But just using it as a kind of, of meditative aid and I thought about a, a video segment I'd seen on a musician uh, who <coughs> I really, really admire and is a lifetime, you know, genius percussionist. And his comment was about uh, the instrument he had in his hands at the moment. He said, all of the sounds that this instrument is capable of making are within the instrument. And I thought, wow, something about that really seems, mm. well, he's not equivocating there. And I really <laughs> had to stop for a moment and think about that. And the uh, the people doing the film crew doing the interview, that they kind of stopped too. And they couldn't decide, and maybe the listeners can't either, is that just such an obvious truth? Although I maintain that there's nothing inherently obvious. Is that so clear and incapable of, of argument and dispute? Or is that a completely radical, bizarre idea that's obviously not true? Because uh, what about the, the, the expertise of, of the artist playing the instrument? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, here is an example of what oscillation, our term oscillation really means that dynamic relational energy between artist and instrument. The mm. instrument itself just sitting there, well, you'd have to say it's silent, you know, most likely. I mean, you can set some things up so the wind, you know, might blow them, you know, that's possible, sure. But normally we would say an instrument is, is not being played unless someone's playing it. Uh, but if we say, well, the music is in the musician mm -hmm. that doesn't seem right either no um, that doesn't seem right so something is going on where we have 
the possibility of an enormously beautiful dynamic relationship. I mean, that's what it is when a great musician sits down at a harpsichord or picks up a saxophone or plays a garment drum on the, you know, the banks of the Sepik River. You know, it is different depending on the, the expertise and the experience and the, the commitment of the artist. And yet, there's something in the instrument too. And I, I think that that oscillation, exploring that relationship, and I also might say this is one of the issues that we'll explore in the book club segment on Robert Irwin's art. We'll look at that from a visual perceptual point of view, but it's the same issue that the art is neither in the artist, nor does it inhere in the object created, the art is somehow the what happens to the viewer, what happens mm. to the in the experience, the dynamic relationship, and seeing that as a relationship, not just a static, well, subject and object, you know, someone beating a drum. You know, that's mm. that's our language trap. We see someone beating a drum. Whereas mm. if you really, really see something exciting you see someone become a drum you know as mm -hmm. Yates said who can tell the dancer from the dance you know this is an old idea but I think it's it's worth thinking about oscillation in those terms and then to think about that in terms of memory I mean what would that mean about memory and that got me thinking of uh well there's a wonderful segment in Philip K. Dick's book uh Ubik which is one of the, the, the Vallis trilogies. I think it's one of his best. Uh, it, it's, it's good science fiction of the Philip K. Dick kind, but it's really cool metaphysics, philosophy, and Dick just freaking out. But he has a moment where a character sees an elevator, a basic elevator, right? Nothing fancy. But the perception is of an older elevator, like a fossilized version going back in, in time, you know? And what if machines, what if all of the things around us contained this sense of memory? And that got me on to one of the first people that, that really had this thought very clearly. And David earlier talked about the problems of philosophy not being well written. Well, Samuel Butler, I think a lot of people would have heard of, who was a really, really interesting novelist and fabulous in that sense, uh, wrote some really interesting pieces. And, and this was what he had this idea well before Philip K. Dick about inherent memory in objects. Uh -huh. And what if that kind of, of energy exchange was part of our own memories? You know, what if we're drawing some energy without really any sense of consciousness about it directly, from things around us. I mean, yeah. what triggers memories that we are aware of and do know? Well, sometimes it's objects, songs, smells, you know, all of these things in the world that they're not within our heads. They're, they're fundamentally not within our brains. We're responding to things in the world and we're probably responding to things at a much faster and more detailed rate than we have any possibility of grasping most of the time. So I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. 
on this show, and I'm not going to say a word about what you just said because I think it's um, it's so perfect, and I want to sit with it instead. I have uh, the idea that I might be able to add something onto that idea next time. I'm going to revisit a text called um, Sand Talk by Tyson Yunkaporta, which is about uh, Aboriginal ways of thinking. Um, yes. Yes, that's great. You've mentioned it, and I love that book. You turn me on. I think that's a really good reference point for people. Yeah, but I'm not gonna. I'm not even gonna respond because I think that instead of doing that, instead of me spending five minutes talking, I think you'd be better served by rewinding about five minutes and uh, playing that again. So well done, sir. That was that's great. That's awesome. That's that that's a high point for the past few episodes for me. Uh, listening to that, that was just that was great. Oh, thank you. Thank you yeah. very much. I appreciate that. I hope, um, you know, I think this is a good thing of, of taking taking some time to think over things and coming at them from different points of view uh, because things do connect around in, in, in weird ways. And uh, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm grateful that, that that seemed to make sense. Yep, yep. And it gives me an excuse to reread the Yonka Porta book, which is, you know, always good. Um so we're wrapping up here. Did we have uh, practical tips in a dream? I, I certainly hope we do. Yeah, we do. Yes. We do. And I, I, I think the practical tip is, is uh, well, I find this particularly exciting because it, it really is a good tool. And it's something that people may, uh, I mean, it, it, I hope with all of the things I mentioned that they're not uh, so unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't mean them to be. I think they're, they should be very familiar, but I hope to put a new light on them and to show a new kind of a new arrangement of shadows perhaps from them. But I'll give a little bit of background because it is ultimately a very simple technique, but I I was walking around my neighborhood and I I just wanted to have a little bit of a mind break and a photo safari. And I I try to take a few photographs and to, to be completely open-ended as to what they will be. I'm not looking for anything. I'm just, I'm letting it happen. And I encountered uh, a kind of corral of shopping carts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, oh, it's kind of, you know, interesting, uh, sort of. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it and I thought, well, that's an interesting idea. You know, here are these shopping trolleys kind of in a, in a holding cell, you know. And I thought I, I should be able to get you know, a photograph there, some interesting shadows with the bars, the grid work, you know, and I just couldn't make it work. I couldn't make it. And I I was really stunned. I thought to myself, wait a minute. I pride myself on, on believing that there is no photograph that couldn't be made interesting. There's no subject that is really boring if I bring you know, my heart and mind to it, but I just couldn't get the, I couldn't get the angle. I couldn't get the traction on this. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm big on the technique of inversion, and this is the tool. And I thought, I'm looking at these shopping carts imprisoned, Mm -hmm. and that sounds interesting as language. I can make it seem conceptually interesting. I can't make the image work. Mm -hmm. What's, What's my problem? And I thought, okay, well... If I'm saying it's not interesting enough, and I hate that expression, I hate that point of view, what is it missing? Mm -hmm. What is it lacking? 
And I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to use my technique of, of inversion. Rather than what it's lacking, what does it have too much mm. of? And instantly I thought transparency. That was the word that came mm-hmm. to mind. I didn't try to, to pick that apart mm-hmm. or, you know, really interrogate that further. But I thought, well, this is a way to think about things. Inversion. If you think there is a lack of something, well, maybe there's a super abundance of something else. Mm-hmm. And almost the moment I started walking, uh, a car drove past me and I didn't like the music they were playing because, mm-hmm. you know, and my the thought that crossed my mind is, you know, I, I live in a time of a dearth of imagination. And again, I, I have these conversations alone. I think we all do, but I'm not proud mm-hmm. of them. <laughs> and so I thought, damn it, I'm going to instantly invert that. And I, instead of like a, a super abundance of imagination, I, I came up with, you do not live in a time of a dearth of imagination. You live amidst an epidemic of imagination. Mm-hmm. You just don't like the forms mm-hmm. that imagination often takes. Yep. And I think that's a really powerful way for creative, thoughtful people, people who hold you know high standards for critical thinking, to try to reposition things, invert situations invert conflicts invert binaries try it it's a very simple technique but i think it's very powerful i love it i'm gonna do that this week yeah i really like the idea of instead of there being um uh too little of something there's too much lack or something to that to that effect i mean that's that's actually a great way of looking at it because you know you are constantly being given things i think you see this a lot when you go on a psychedelic trip some people have a hard time with it. It feels like it's way too much because everything starts coming in. But really all that's happening, as McKenna has said, is that your your filters have gone away and you're experiencing the raw shit, as it were. Um, and so, you know, you, you are, when you're on a trip, you are experiencing all the abundance and all of the lack, but the lack as a, as a positive rather than a negative. And um, I think in the sober waking world, uh, when we're trying to do these uh, kind of relational activities, such as art and memory, it's it's a great framing device for getting something out of these things. Actually, I don't like the term getting something out of what we're doing. I take that back. I, I will equivocate that, actually, because I don't like that. <laughs> but a, a better way to, uh, to, to do the damn thing. How about that? So I, I think that's better. That's fair enough. Fair enough. So... Yeah, it's great. Are we ready for the dream? I'm always ready for the dream, dude. Okay. Well, going back in time, real time, the things that really happened. When I lived in Melbourne, Australia, I had this 6,000 square foot, very raw, primitive warehouse studio. It was big enough to have an archery range, and I did. I had a lot of weird stuff. I had a fully sized, taxidermized fallow deer. I had a totem pole, an industrial totem pole I'd made. I had a lot of crazy stuff. And it was a really great period in in that city's uh, life. One of the places I liked to go was the Valhalla Theater in the Richmond District. 
which is a big Vietnamese neighborhood, lots of great cheap restaurants. And in those days, the funky revival art house Valhalla Theater, which is, of course, long, closed and demolished, would do five bucks for a 48-hour movie marathon. And you could go next door and for 99 cents get a bowl of really hot, fragrant Vietnamese clear soup. And it was perfect. I mean, for artists on the cheap, it was fantastic. And inside the Valhalla, there were no seats. There were just these very dubious beanbag chairs that never got laundered. But you didn't care. That's awesome. You didn't care. Yeah. And it was one of those places you walk in and it smells of hash oil. And within a couple of minutes of whatever marathon you're seeing, like a you know, maybe you're watching Soylent Green and some weirdo science fiction things, suddenly you're going to have a, a woman's head in your lap. You know, and you've never met. Story and it's it better and better. It just was one of those magical places. So I really uh, looked forward to going there. And I was just devastated when it closed. But in my dream, I return. And it's a cold night. And Melbourne can get actually pretty sharp. And I start, I could smell some of those beautiful Vietnamese cooking smells, ginger and coriander, you know, smoking pork. And I could think just, oh, maybe just one of those clear bowls of soup, a couple of spring onions on the top. I thought, I'm going to go in the theater. I really felt called. And I walk in the door and there's no bean bags. There's nothing But there are three figures down the front. And in torso and body, they appear human, you would say. But their heads are these oversized ancient sea turtle heads, massively wrinkled, just there's lichen and all sorts of growths in the cracks and crevices of these faces. And the heads are at least one and a half times what they sh- the size they should be for the bodies. I get the general impression there are two male presences and a female. They're kind of in robes, but I think they could be more like suits of some kind. But they're, they're in front of this table, kind of like a judging panel. And I'm like, oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, dear. And I'm just overwhelmed by their faces and their uh, sea turtles blow my mind. I had a real religious experience with one uh, at one point. Uh, I thought it was a shark when I was swimming alone. So I'm just freaking out. And I, I don't know what to say. And finally, they speak in unison. And they say this. When you say something makes sense to you, you mean you're not surprised. Mm. And I thought, and I, I kind of nodded, didn't say anything. I couldn't really speak. And they said to me, 
is understanding that limits all surprise the kind of understanding that you seek. And I thought, wow. I just had no answer to that. And I took yeah. my leave and went out and <clears throat> went to uh, the Vietnamese restaurant. Wow. And there was nobody there. That's amazing. But that's what the giant turtle people said to me. That's incredible. Hey, actually, can I share a dream? Actually, I, I had a yeah. good one. Okay, lay, cool. Lay one on cool. us, man. I have not been dreaming a lot recently because of the child and <laughs> how little sleep I'm getting. But they're starting to come back. I had... Uh, you know, an inconsequential one today that where uh, I was informed that the air was toxic and then I woke up and sure enough, I checked my phone and the air quality wasn't great. Not a very interesting dream, but I did have an interesting dream three nights ago. And it was um, a friend of mine who I knew only in the dream had just gotten out of jail. And, you know, it's this kind of guy with uh, bleach blonde M&M hair and stick and poke tattoos. And we go to celebrate his release from prison uh, up on this bridge. And in the dream, the bridge is as high as some of those Russian daredevil pictures that you'll see where they climb these very tall structures and then take selfies with their selfie sticks. Right, right. Very vertigo inducing. So this is how high up this bridge is. And the bridge is under construction. So we're talking and we're having a good time. We're all drinking old English, right? OE. We have 40 ounces with us and we're just really happy that our, our buddy is out of prison. <laughs> and I get the impression that this guy, uh, now that he's released from prison, he's going to bring peace amongst the rival gangs. Uh, in the dream, I'm never really told who the rival gangs are, but I get the impression that he's somebody who's, who's going to bring peace to the world or to at least my world, right? And so <clears throat> we're up there having a good time and he's telling a story and gesticulating wildly and he takes a step backwards into a part of the bridge that hasn't quite been finished yet and he plummets and my friend and I watch him fall 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 and I'm immediately overcome with all of these emotions I can't believe that my friend is dead I can't believe that I didn't do anything to stop him from falling uh, you know people are going to blame me for this all of these things are going through my head but the number one thing that I felt after this this person who's going to bring peace, this peacemaker fell off the bridge was relief. Mmm. Mmm. Yeah. No hiding from that feeling. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's the first real um good good solid dream that I've had in quite some time. So well, that's it. You should definitely keep track of those because your sleep patterns have certainly been uh, disrupted. And I think that's a good sign that, that some of that dream sense comes back, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that, 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 that's, you know, it's not a bad thing if you don't remember your dreams always, but it, it's cool if it does, you know, and I think, but yeah. I think that's a very interesting expression of it. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, folks, thanks for joining us here in this bonus episode. Tell all your friends about No Country and our special Patreon bonus section. Uh, I think this episode is so good, I'm very tempted to put it on the on the free side as well, which is not something that obviously we're going to make it a habit out of because 
you, the good people of the Patreon, do pay for this. But I kind of want to show, um, I kind of want to show some folks what's going on over here, so they can get a sense of it. And I feel like this one was really good. I'm leaving this episode feeling uh, invigorated, which is a shame because it's 9:30 and it's almost my bedtime. But I'm sure I'll make the most of it. Chris, have a good evening. But I think that's it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, people. We really appreciate your support. And there's some very exciting stuff coming up for next time. I think I've done very well to not give any more hints or, or you know, but I'm trying. Uh, but it's worth checking out. We've, we've got more. Well, it just gets more and more exciting all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that, uh, well... I'm going to, yeah, just prepare myself for for our next episode and not give away any more of the strangeness.